0: Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Great episode for you today. Looking at fat activism, which is profiled in a new book by Jenny Ellison entitled Being Fat, Women, Weight, and Feminist Activism in Canada. Uh, Just a wonderful book. What's really cool about it is Jenny uses a lot of oral history interviews of women who were involved in the fat activist movement in the latter part of the 20th century and goes through and discusses how they were pushing back against a lot of ideas associated with feminism at the time, including femininity, sexuality, and health. Just a wonderful book that takes a subject that as as jenny talks about in the book is seen as a very niche topic but really shows how it fits into a very wide swath of canadian life at the time and and it should not be viewed as a niche topic at all there's a a lot of of material to unpack in it and it's definitely a a very well-written well-rounded book and and i would highly recommend it so I had the opportunity earlier to speak with Jenny Allison, who is also in Ottawa. Weren't able to do it in person, of course, because of everything going on with COVID. But I was able to speak with Jenny Allison earlier. So let's get right to that conversation. All right. And Jenny Allison, the curator of sport and leisure at the Canadian Museum of History, joining us from Ottawa. I think this is the first time, Jenny, that we've done an Ottawa-based interview, not in person so hello 2020 welcome to the show
1: yeah it's very on trend for the for the this year
0: yes so uh as i mentioned off the top you are the uh, sport and leisure curator for the museum of history if anyone's wondering before we get into the the book itself what is going on with the museum and how is the museum responding to everything that's going on i know we talked a little before that it was open briefly different rules for the museum of history versus some of the Ottawa, other Ottawa museums, because it's over on the Quebec side, but just in general, you know, how is the museum responded to everything going on? I think things
1: are, you know, operations continue. And that's the part that's been most, um, you know, amazing to me to watch is that, you know, it's been a fairly seamless, uh, shift into uh, work from home operations. And yeah, we were briefly open in September. I, I had an exhibition open in September on Rick Hansen, which will be there and will be in place as soon as we can open again. So I think right now we're just going with the flow and the public health guidelines like everyone else. And and uh, when we can open, we'll open.
0: Yeah, this is really all you can do, right? Uh, yeah. And it, it's one of those things too, that I know for me, being a local i tend to go to the museums more in the summer than in the winter i think it's mostly because i walk to these places so i I tend to go in the summer i know it's it's always busy in the summer for the museums and it's it's certainly tough that they're not open but it's good to know that all the work behind the scenes that when you go to a museum you don't necessarily see is still going on so that when we can reopen those exhibits are going to be there the temp exhibits are going to keep coming in so it's, it's good to know that all that work is still being done behind the scenes
1: yeah, absolutely. It's been a busy, busy time for sure.
0: Yeah. So uh, so let's get into the book it's, again, as I said off the top, it's Being Fat, Women, Weight, and Feminist Activism in Canada. So let's get into the core premise of the book being fat activism as the, one of the key tenants. So for anyone who is not familiar with this concept, what is fat activism?
1: Fat activism is a social movement that's existed in Canada since the 1970s, so I use the term movement to encompass a range of activities that include things that look like typical feminist and social movement activism, you know, groups forming uh, to provide solidarity among fat women, and I also use it to describe what I call the long reach of the movement into things like exercise classes and clothing stores created by female entrepreneurs, And the premise of the movement is that it's okay to be fat, And the different ways that people enact that idea shifts depending on their politics and their location.
0: So when we look at this for Canada, in terms of the location of it, is there some divide east-west, north-south, urban-rural that that emerges?
1: Oh, for sure. It follows, I think, probably trends that we can think of from other social movements in in terms of being uh, primarily urban, for example. I think we see differences between Canada and the United States. And that's one of the through lines of the book is the early origins of the movement movement in the United States were very much divided along a, a liberal radical ideological line, along uh, liberal and radical feminist lines. Whereas in Canada by the 1980s, these lines are completely blurred. And so we see, for example, people. Uh, enacting aerobics class using a language of empowerment that we can trace through second wave feminist discourse. And uh, we see radical ideas uh, being used in, you know, commercial sites. And so I think it's important to think about why that happens in Canada. And I think one of the reasons is uh, different attitudes towards health, uh, different attitudes uh, towards policies around gender and um, human rights.
0: So in terms of the chronology of all this, the, the book starts really around the 1970s, right? And what, what is going on socially that allows this movement to crystallize and come together in the way it does?
1: In the 1970s, if we look at a national level, what we see is a turn towards a greater sense of personal responsibility for health. And so through the 60s and early 70s, There's health is part of the Just Society project, and there's many uh, different things that are going on in terms of funding health. And and among them are, you know, participation uh, becomes an arm's length organization through the federal government uh, funding for community centers and rec centers coming out of 1967 the centennial projects. But as budget cuts start to come at the federal level through the 1970s and into the early 1980s, there's a, the national level, a sense that, you know, Um, a better way forward is to get people to take personal responsibility for their health. And this is happening at a social level as well with the rise of things like jogging and and greater attention to uh, physical fitness uh, at a personal and individual level. And so there's a lot of different trends that are coming together. I think for the women I talked to, and that's what I first thought of when you asked me this question and thinking about the, the women, it was a lot of it felt for them to be deeply personal and it was related to material aspects of their everyday lives in terms of their experiences finding clothing, their experiences going to exercise classes, and then their experiences in, in interpersonal relationships, often with their family. So what I expected to find when I started this study was that this movement grew out of the problem of representations of women, and then it grew out of that concern about overemphasis on femininity and slenderness in advertising. What I found instead is it was uh, deeply connected to a critique of programs like participation. It was deeply connected to you know, interpersonal relationships and to really practical questions like can I find a pair of pants that fit me? And if I can't, why not?
0: So that leads to this idea then of unbelonging, right? And that mm-hmm. you're not part of whatever the group is. And in this particular case, I, I do like that example of clothes because one of the, the examples that's used in the book is somebody who created their own clothing store and, and created a business out of this. So how does unbelonging to a group then lead to activism for folks and how do we differentiate, if we can at all, between activism in a way that I think a lot of people tend to think of it as, you know, letter campaigns, protesting, saying that this is wrong versus what a lot of the women who you talk to in the book did was enter into the market to fill a, a gap and overcome that sense of unbelonging.
1: Yeah. So unbelonging is a term that I, I recently started to, to use to refer to, to these groups of women because it, it happens on two fronts in this movement. One is a sense of unbelonging within feminism, uh, within lesbian feminist, liberal feminist circles. There's a sense that the body is not what people wanted to be talking about uh, in this this era. This is a not, at least not the physical size of people's bodies, you know, where this is an era where we're talking about employment rights, we're talking about reproductive rights. And so there were feminists who wanted to talk about fat embodiment, who felt outside of the feminist movement and ignored. And so there's a few key groups that form to talk about being fat in uh, in feminist terms and to organize together along feminist lines and so those groups look a little bit more like what you're describing they have interventions at feminist events and they 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 write articles in feminist periodicals and things like that the other group of women i think found themselves between feminism and something else and they they didn't necessarily see themselves belonging in feminism. And I think part of that was because they didn't connect with the feminist critique of femininity. They didn't connect with this idea that there was something inherently problematic about wanting to dress in a feminine way or wear makeup, which I think is, you know, a huge oversimplification of feminism in this decades. But I think um, we can understand that there's this sort of broad understanding of what feminism is. And there was this sense by some fat women that that wasn't them equally, however, the the material reality of their day-to-day lives was such that if you went to a mall or you went into a department store of the era uh you couldn't find clothing that you wanted and 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 there were these sort of daily insults that people experienced in their everyday lives and so how they came together actually if we think of one of the groups was called largest life in vancouver they first actually met at a therapy workshop called the forgotten women for fat women only where they were there to explore their feelings as fat women and that's like a very late seventies thing to do. And uh, after that, they came together and kept meeting. And then one of the one of the people in that group, Kate Partridge, decided to put um, to contact a journalist at a Vancouver newspaper, and they did an interview. And at the end of the uh, the piece, they just said, you know, if you want to talk more about this problem of not being able to find clothes, contact Kate Partridge. And she had over fifty people call her.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I think that she touched a nerve at a time when. You know, it it, it people it felt important to people. You know, a lot of them were in their 20s and early 30s. And, and she connected with something, you know, a real problem that people experienced. And from that, uh, Largest Life, as, as one example from the book, grew, grew into a group of about 100 to 120 members, and they had a newsletter circulation of 500. So it definitely connected.
0: Yeah, and I think the title of that workshop, Being Forgotten Women, again, really hits home the idea of unbelonging. Uh, to a certain group. But what I'm, I'm curious, though, as you're talking, that there's this gap between feminism and what these women are experiencing, while at the same time, those daily experiences, there's conflict there. But are those two things necessarily connected? And what I'm wondering is, at this point, say with fashion, was the fashion industry still so dominated by men that the clothing that is being produced is through this male gaze of the ideal women or the ideal woman and quote unquote, ideal woman, of course. Yeah, that's good. Right. That the men who are creating the clothing aren't taking into account these women. And then the, the, the conflict between what they're experiencing and feminists like are, are those two separate things or are they connected?
1: I think I need to talk that through. I mean, I think if we think about the fashion industry, I, there's, I mean, obviously uh, market forces that are at play uh, in terms of the availability. And yes, I mean, at the time, you know, Pennington's was the main plus size clothing store for women in Canada across the 20th century. And the people I talked to had a really mixed feeling about it. Like in some ways it was like an old friend, you know, they appreciated that Pennington's they, was there when no other retailer wasn't. At the same time, there was frustration that, there wasn't an availability of clothes in other sizes. Even retailers like Eaton's didn't really go up um, much uh, past what what would, you know, now be a size 14. Um, And I think that's a problem that still exists is that, um, and I think what it stems from is this sense that fat bodies are temporary or they should be temporary. Hmm. And that people who are fat probably don't want to buy fashionable clothes for that size because they're hoping that, Um, they're going to lose weight and and fit into their size 12 or their size 10. And so I think there's a lot of different assumptions about largeness that are built into the fashion industry's exclusion of that market. And I think right now there's a lot of work to shift that. And we can see even like Lululemon has recently gone into what they now call extended sizes and embraced um, the concept of body diversity. But I think the industry itself hasn't seen fat women as fashionable or ideal and we see even still now there's some designers who say you know that we don't want to show women in those sizes so i think it's it's you know it's there's a gender aspect to it but it's about the market it's about long-standing biases and assumptions about large people whether or not that's connected to feminism i don't think i'm entirely understanding what you're seeing the connection is i think i'm just not hearing you
0: well i i guess my my thinking is that so th- th- it almost seems like they're fighting two different fronts. Mm. Uh, here's our front with the daily issues, particularly with fashion. That's the one that, you know, to me at least as a man would stand out like straight away, versus the the issues and the critiques that they're having of feminism. Like they, they seem like they might be, you know, on two di- yeah like I said on two oh, different fronts yeah. having these battles because the daily stuff versus the broader ideas of feminism, I don't know how tightly they're connected. So are are they sort of pushing against two different, are pushing in two different directions in that way?
1: I think that's something that we haven't talked about yet, but this is a good place to talk about it is, there are differences within the movement in terms of how people approach different topics. And so with the groups that were more explicitly feminist, they didn't take on fashion as much. Um, for example, the lesbian feminist group, uh, LG San Lesbian Girls Cinq that was based in Montreal, um, were part of a movement within feminism where they tended to wear, uh, gender neutral clothing overalls and things like that. And so they tended not to take on the fashion issue, um, or battle on that front. Um, their focus was primarily, um, bias within lesbian feminist movements, as well as questions of health and what, um some people call healthism bias against people based on the assumption that being fat is inherently unhealthy. Whereas a group like largest life in Vancouver, uh, which was using feminist ideas, but not explicitly feminist in orientation tended to focus more on fashion. So there's diversity within the movement, um, which I think is in itself interesting that this basic idea that it's okay to be fat kind of gets applied. They're all working from the same literature. They're working from the same books and pamphlets and ideas that get, um, launched into the world by radical fat activists in the, in the 60s and early 70s, and yet the way they take those up and apply them to the problems that they think are important is extremely diverse. And so as I was writing the book, I started to work with um, you know, the concept of traveling theory and, and Kathy Davis's book on the, our bodies ourselves and, and became, although I don't think it is really present on the surface of the book, really interested in this idea of how ideas change as they move from place to place. Because I think that's really important to giving feminism greater depth and talking about the impact of feminism, because the impact of feminism doesn't end at the named feminist movement. The impact of feminism goes so much further beyond that into its discursive impact on how people talk about being a woman and how they experience and see themselves as women. And so that's really ultimately where I'm going with the book although it's not a heavily theoretical book, that's kind of what's underpinning the way I frame the subject.
0: So would it be possible to say that the even if they're not necessarily working directly together, that they're working in concert towards the singular goal?
1: Uh, you know, I don't think they had a singular goal. No. I I, <laughs> um, I think that these groups often didn't know that the others existed. They were, they were, they existed at the same time. And yet in some ways, there was a, f- a few networks where they knew of each other, but in many ways, nobody had an idea or a sense of themselves as a movement in the 1980s. And I don't think that's uncharacteristic of a lot of social movements, which could be really disjointed. But there's no national umbrella here. Uh, and there's there's no sense that, yeah, that there is a common goal. I mean, each go- group, I think, had goals that were, were deeply connected to how they saw themselves as women and what they thought the most important important issue was for fat women. So the connections are intellectual and and the basic idea that it's okay to be fat and that people shouldn't experience discrimination and or exclusion and or unbelonging from being fat is the through line and yet the way that they apply that is very very subjective in many
0: cases. And for the women who are involved in the the feminist critique and that angle of it, how much of what they're experiencing is explicit unbelonging from the larger group and how much of it is more just the the general tone of discussions, right? Like when you go into a fashion store, for instance, and they don't have your size, like that's a pretty clear sign. Is is there that that you're not necessarily welcome in that establishment that they're not providing you an option there? Is, Is there similar signs on the more ideological side of the issue?
1: Yeah, I think what you mean by that is I think, you know, within feminism, feminist fat activism or or, or fat activist groups that would explicitly identify themselves as feminist and texts that identified that way did explicitly take aim at the movement itself, much as much the same way that lesbians, for example, took aim at um, liberal feminism in the 1960s. As we move into the 1980s, uh, sort of the, the late 1980s, the feminist discourse around the body shifts towards the concerns about self-esteem and women lacking self-esteem. And, um, you know, the most famous version of that critique being Naomi Wolf's the the beauty myth. And so the other key feminist group besides LG Sank and Montreal was a group called Her Size that started in Toronto in 1987. And they were much more oriented to thinking about questions of, you know, self-esteem in the body and a little bit less oriented to um, like an imminent critique of feminism, uh, they were a little bit more, you know, it was a bit more mainstream within feminism by the late eighties and the end of the period that I discussed to talk about uh, the problem of self-esteem um, and how that may have impacted women's ability to liberate themselves, essentially. Although interestingly, the critique of self-esteem, especially as it's articulated in the late eighties and early nineties is really focused on the challenge of being thin. And so it's interesting that there is this one Canadian group her size that, that, uh, talks about being fat. But in general, it's one of the things that actually inspired this book was um, coming of age in the era of that critique of self-esteem and the concern about people dying to be thin and, and and wondering what else was going on within feminism in that time. And how do we think about other bodies who don't fit into that framework?
0: Right. So in, in that sense, we'd be talking about so ableism as another example of the same type of thing.
1: No, I wasn't specifically talking about ableism. I was thinking more specifically around the lines of um, people who either weren't dying to be thin or people who right. were, would never meet that ideal. Okay. Um, uh, uh, non-white women, um, you know, large women, people who would refuse it. And definitely when I started this project, my ex- assumption, you know, my, going in was that when I thought about fat activism, it would always look like this sort of original iteration of the movement, which was um, mostly associated with this group called the Fat Underground, who wrote the Fat Liberation Manifesto in the 1960s, and and I expected to find this really radical group of people who re- refused femininity, and uh, because you know that's those were the ideological lines I understood from my own experience of and also study of feminism, and so to come in and find a feminism that's much more muddy. Um, that's much more about people picking up on strands and ideas of empowerment and um, creating women-centered spaces and, you know, critiquing health in ways that they don't even really understand or, you know, connected to the longer history of the women's health movement, to me is really, you know, really fascinating because I think it's hard to see that kind of feminism in history. It's hard to identify it when it, it falls outside of the kind of umbrella organizations that we understand as part of the Canadian movement.
0: Let's talk about that in terms of the creation of spaces then, because Mm -hmm. it strikes me as, again, as somebody who's not an expert in this by any means that this also serves as a pretty clear critique of market capitalism, that there are these women who are not, being provided the the service that they that they want there's clearly a market for it cuz so many of these women created successful businesses for them so mm-hmm. is there also then that capitalist elements to this that the, the uh, just another piece of evidence that the market doesn't always respond to what the consumer base might be demanding
1: yeah. And again, I think, um, you know, they wouldn't have most of the the, the the people that I interviewed wouldn't have, you know, seen themselves in those kind of in terms of market forces. It was they, they saw it much more personally, I think, which is a big part of the history of feminism. Right. People think things are personal. They're actually uh, part of much larger social forces that are going on. And, um, yeah, I think that that's one of the cool things that we can see through the movement that, again, I didn't expect was to see female entrepreneurship. Uh, inspired by people who just thought, well, the market's not going to do it, so I'm going to do it, and uh, either becoming importers or creating their own fashion lines. Um, and before they did that, something fun, really fun, that they did was they would, in newsletters, they would share tips about where to find clothes to cross-border shop. So, um, if anyone listening to this grew up in Ontario in the 1980s like I did, in the post-free trade world, you know, cross-border shopping was massively controversial and considered almost, you know, anti-nationalist. <laughs> to cross the border to shop get a bargain instead of uh instead of shop at home in ontario whereas uh this gave me a a much different view on that it's a little earlier in the decade it's in the early 1980s where yeah the market didn't provide the 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 canada is a smaller you know market and we still we still see that from time to time in terms of um brands that come into the country and so uh things weren't available here and so when they were trying to get their exercise clothes um they couldn't always find the kind of dancekin tights and leotards they wanted. And so they could find them. Um, this is Vancouver groups could find them across the border in Seattle. So they just trade t- traded tips in their newsletters. <laughs> and, and eventually Suzanne Bell, who has a very entrepreneurial spirit, uh, was running the fitness programs run by Largest Life in Vancouver. And she you know, realized there was an opportunity here. And so she hired a pattern maker and just began making these like wild and wonderful neon, hot pink, stretchy uh, aerobics, leotards, just the the leotards of your dreams. Very, very fashionable.
0: Yeah. And and that's one of those things that really stands out when you think of the 80s is the fitness wear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I watch the Goldbergs, uh, the, the show that's set in the 80s. And the yeah. mother on that show is always or not always, but frequently is doing some sort of jazzercise and the stuff that they put her in is just hilarious to look at and just the colors Mm -hmm. and it's right in your face, but it does address or get us to the issue a little bit about the idea of health. So Mm -hmm. this is one of the things that certainly interests me in the book. And in the, the case you just mentioned, making athletic wear for these women yet at the same time, the book discusses the idea that health was used or exercise could be used as a weapon. So how does the idea of health play into some of these broader concepts of activism and what exactly are the women pushing back against when it comes to exercise in particular?
1: I mean, it's a critique where I that has become a little bit more courant now that it's become more visible because of the so-called obesity epidemic. But the, the, the critique that they were elaborating in the 1980s was more focused on exercise. And I think it's partly because at the time, the way we talked about health was more focused on exercise than it was necessarily on sort of this idea of obesity. And so what fat activists do or what they're responding to in part was the sense that people who are fat can't be fit. And in fact, there's a great and by great, I mean problematic, but at the same time, extremely of its era, participation ad called fat is not where it's at. And I can't tell you how many people specifically referenced the ad to me in in interviews and you can find it on YouTube really easily. And, um, and it expresses really well, I think the stereotype that fatness is a sign of unfitness and that, um, fat people are inherently unhealthy and inherently unfit and that was problematic uh for this group of people partly because many of them took great pleasure in fitness and and wanted to 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 um be active together but felt wary of going into say a gym space or an aerobics class because of assumptions made about their bodies they felt wary because they couldn't find the clothes they wanted and so they started their own exercise classes and also they did um, another group Organized its own private swim and actually still organizes this private swim every week, but it was it was a response to this idea that um, yeah, just that fat people couldn't be fit. Now, in the contemporary fat activist movement, there's been um, some ambivalence about this sort of 1980s approach to to aerobics because fat aerobics for fat women only actually became quite a um, visible trend across Canada and the United States in the 1980s, and there was different aerobics programs created for fat women only in the contemporary movement they've looked back on this and felt that it was a sign that fat activists of the 1980s felt compelled to be what they called good fatties that they felt compelled to participate in aerobics to show people that they were they were essentially disciplinary subjects and that they too um, were fit and that people just misunderstood their bodies i i find in the research i've done that that critique doesn't entirely resonate because so much of what this was about was creating a community and a safe space for each other and it wasn't about exercising for other people but actually creating a safe space so that people could exercise together. Uh, and it was also all done sort of not-for-profit and, and in ways that were very celebratory. However for contemporary activists I think there's been a concern that that this that that movement uh, that exercise movement in the 1980s was about conforming. Uh, I, I don't I don't agree, but I, uh, that's the critique that's
0: out there. Right. And I can understand where that critique comes from. And I mean, I, I, I don't feel comfortable going to a gym, to be honest. Like, I don't need all these bros who are just like screaming as they lift weights around me. Like, I don't want that. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so I, I, I can understand sort of the, the element of that critique. But what, what's interesting to me about the pushback or, or this tension that exists when it comes to health is the connection between health and healthy living or Mm -hmm. active living versus physical appearance because as more and more studies and research gets done it appears as though the correlation isn't nearly as as close as what people thought back in the 80s or hell even thought five years ago or a lot of people think today that Mm -hmm. you know there are so many other factors that go into your physical size and yet so many people put forth the idea that if you exercise, you will be skinny. And yet that doesn't seem to be the case. So where is the line for these, these people between being active for the sake of being active and the benefits, the health benefits that go along with that, all the, all the things that doctors talk about versus the actual outward appearance and the size that they, ha- that they were or are? In terms of their motivation to exercise,
1: I'm sure that was you know personal for most people. I think um, Suzanne Bell, uh, who um, I've already mentioned, was the fitness coordinator for Largest Life. We talked about this a little bit. What were people's motivations for coming to class? And her observation was that it was you know it was mixed, and and she tended to um, you know preach the idea of fat and fit in her class, no matter who her audience was. I think that talking to people, they just they had mixed motivations you know that they they found it difficult to let go of that dream that they'd one day be thin and yet in the classes they also found a space where uh they weren't compelled to or felt pressure to be you know losing weight and so I think that there's a there's probably you know a lot of mixed motivations that come in there um Deb Burkert, who is a, a big proponent of um aerobics for fat women only in in the States and sort of started some of the first classes in San Francisco in the seventies. I was recently on another podcast backstory with her and she referred to her classes as recess for adults, which I really appreciated. Um, And uh, the reason I I like that is because I think that, um, well, I can't fully know people's motivations. People didn't always want to talk about that. You know, when you, you meet them in interviews, they don't always want to talk about their greatest vulnerabilities. But when we talk to the people who created the classes and we and we look at people's commentary on the atmosphere of the classes, you find a a really pleasure centered space that, you know, you talked about exercise being weaponized. I think exercise has like always been, you know, weaponized within the culture. But certainly the discourse of the early 1980s is is where, where physical activity turns into physical fitness, you know, exercise, you know, coming together as community and moving your body becomes a lot more goal oriented. And so um, that's something that's a little bit of a personal pet peeve of mine is when people, you know, always talk about fitness and not just activity or, you know, pleasure and just moving your bodies as they are uh, in ways that you would like to. And so in the classes, they had this atmosphere where it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't like going to Weight Watchers. It wasn't like going to a regular aerobics class where maybe there was more of an um, explicit discourse on weight loss.
0: Right. Sort of this idea that you get now in certainly for me, at least in, in yoga, when I do that, the idea of movement is medicine, right? Mm-hmm. That, that you're moving to make yourself feel good. That's, yeah, right And that's sort of the, the point of it. But at some point or, or is there a point, because it seems to me that this happens sometimes where messaging related to being active, even if it's in, in the sense of just be active, get out, move around and eat healthy. At what point or, or is there a point at which that gets crosses over into shaming and you know there's a lot so much talk about body shaming in the culture today yeah. and, and I, yeah. I even think of like michelle obama when she had her fit campaign of eat vegetables and and exercise and and move around like whatever it's 60 minutes a day or whatever it is mm-hmm. that there was a lot of criticism of that for the the shaming element of it so in your conversations with these women, where do they fall on this? And, and how do we get to that point where health promotion and the benefits of moving around doesn't fall into shaming? Because obviously, that's not, I think, the intended goal of a lot of the messaging.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it was the 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 point the extra size classes in the movement were just come out, um, work out with people your size, The the images they used on the brochures and things like that. Um, they took stencil images of women and the the editor of their newsletter at this is Large as life I'm speaking to would like enlarge the, the bodies to specifically make them larger. So there's no, um, there's no messaging. There's no language in the teaching of the class or in the promotion of the classes that talks about weight in terms of weight loss, or even, I think, you know, maybe in terms of health, but not in terms of weight loss at all. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, I think in history it's hard to draw those lines, and I think if we, you know, drawing ideological lines is actually really hard. I think sometimes we we talk about this in terms of feminism as well as other sort of clear-cut clear line in terms of what looks feminist and what doesn't. It, um, but um, I mean, I think that in the contemporary context, the Michelle Obama example is a good one. It's we we we've seen what that looks like in the recent past of health promotion that is about pleasure and wellness. Versus health promotion that is about, you know, shaming and ultimately, ultimately identifying a particular body as a problem, and, and it's it's a contradiction certainly within a lot of current wellness discourse. And I think um, I know contemporary activists are very concerned about you know wellness and health discourse as it is now, and even the concept of body positivity because they feel that ultimately what it does is either um, you know market body positivity for the purposes of selling clothes and or that it's really about shaming and 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 changing bodies, and I think that you know for for contemporary activists these are, you know, essential questions. And I, but the way that it the way that it moved through the culture of the nineteen eighties was was slightly different because the way that we talked about the weight was a little bit more focused on exercise and a little bit more focused on aesthetics. And this idea that weight is essentially about health and that fundamentally we can only talk about it in health terms is relatively contemporary. And what I would say of the contemporary culture is, you know, fat is a moving target. And so sure, now we say it's only about health, but um, fat has always been a problem or it's been a problem for a long time, for over a century in in North America and other countries. And, and it's never just about one thing. Um, It often also can be connected back to other concerns, uh, often aesthetic concerns about larger bodies.
0: Well, you mentioned the participation ad that a lot of the women brought up and it, it's so interesting to me because when i think of participation i think of hal johnson and Joan and mcleod and telling me to have fun and that mm-hmm. like that's what i think of so is there i mean obviously there we we all live in our own world based on our own experiences and and we'll interpret things and understand things differently so is in your research and talking to these women How much did their personal experiences govern the way in which they interpreted messaging? And was that it was the way that they interpreted it or or internalized it different from other people, potentially?
1: Hmm. Okay. Well, first of all, about participation. So FAD is not where it's at is like 70s participation. Hal and Joanne are like mid to late 80s. Right. Joanne actually tend to be quite joyful. I'm, I'm kind I'm of fan, kind of a fan. A fan but uh, I feel like I shouldn't say that as a historian. I should be objective. But I think um, a lot of their messaging has been really on point. And you know, Hal Johnson recently, you know, came up publicly and talked about his experiences with racism. So I think there's more to be known about. Break. Uh, um, However, uh, in terms of uh, my book, the idea, yeah, I mean, of course, a lot of this was was based on. Personal experiences, but their personal experiences repeated over time in different social sites, and so the participation ad is like a really visible way that other people would be familiar with to talk about it. Um, but one of the things that I I came to to understand through doing this study is that you know people didn't experience their health in these like discrete ways, but they were all the time experiencing, I shouldn't say their health, they did experience their bodies in discrete ways. They, they were faced in multiple social sites with the message that their bodies were a problem. So they would get it from participation. They would get it at the doctor's office. Sometimes they got it from their families and their parents who, you know, denied them dessert or put them on diet pills. They got it when they went to the clothing store. They got it when they looked at pop culture. And then often sometimes even, uh, it's something I didn't cover in the book, but they got it in schools and lesson plans in terms of what a, the, you know, your, your body should look like and, and what it should do. And so while it's deeply personal, it's repeated in multiple social sites and it's and we find that it cuts across the country and it cuts across several generations of women. And so that's the part of it, I think, that that we can talk about more objectively and, and start to see that it's, it's something that's visible within Canadian culture instead of just something that was personally experienced by, you know, 600 or 1,000 or you know women in, in, in one particular city.
0: So does that fit in then to a larger current of Canadian history where we are I don't know if we're assessing ourselves based on what we see in the culture or that we're we're sort of just inherently conflicted based on the messaging that we're given like it, it strikes me almost that I don't know what the, the number is but the amount of ads that kids see before they're 5 or whatever it is is a staggering amount and is this fit into this larger current of, of marketing and imagery and the idea that you have to fulfill a certain ideal Canadian? And, and over the years, it's always been a moving target and it's always seemed as though there's been a certain type of person that has been promoted as that ideal. So is the, is the trend here in terms of fad activism similar to what we see in other elements of Canadian history?
1: Yeah, I think that it it, it connects to, I think, a longer thread, you know, within the history of exercise and physical activity in Canada where, you know, the idea of, you know, a physical fitness or physical readiness has often been attached to other elements of character, you know, in terms of preparedness for war or... um, you know, just the idea, sort of a muscular Christianity and that, you know, healthy bodies are good bodies and things like that, or, you know, active bodies are good bodies. And so I think that it, yeah, it fits within the culture that way and that at multiple social sites, we, we transmit messages about what the ideal is and that ideal shifts, you know, a little bit over time um, in, in different ways. But it's obviously usually, you know, white, and it's uh, obviously usually about men. Although um, with women, we also see it. And men, I'm thinking about physical preparedness and war. But you know, there's we we see these ideals shifting in in subtle ways. But I think what shifts more than that is just the the ways in which we attach bodies to concepts of health and fitness. So yeah, I think it's a you know something that's really important to think about because it's something as you mentioned in, in your own experience that. You encounter in an everyday way, and it's it's hard to capture. And I think there's a tendency to think that it's not as important as other, you know, social or political experiences that we have. But you know, what's more intimate and everyday than our physical bodies and the ways in which we move through the world and how we are able to dress ourselves and 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 how we are seen by other people? So I think in that way, um, activism sort of connects out to. to to other really important questions that we think about, we should be thinking about and talking about within, you know, within the Canadian experience and within contemporary Canadian history.
0: Right. Well, well, it's hard, right? Because so often we think of outward things as being performative and whether it's, you know, the clothes you wear or the, the words you say or, or whatever you're doing. And yet your physical body is to a, it shouldn't be performative in that it is what it is. And you are who like your physical self is your physical self. And yet so many conclusions are drawn based off of that in terms of, you know, the, the idea of, of laziness or lack of intelligence, right? Those, those stereotypes that have real world harms. I think, I think it was about a year ago. I saw a study about the economic prospects of people who were physically bigger as being less than those who weren't for no reason, right? And and that, the, so these things that they exist and we experience them every single day and they have larger impact on people that go beyond these ideological issues, right? This real world damage that's being done because of the weight of some of these ideas and the, the structures that are created based off of them
1: i guess i have torn i, I and uh, you know theoretically conceptually uh, you know there's never any outside of culture right like there's no perfect self that is not influenced by the cultures in which we live and yet i do agree with what you're saying and that enormous amounts of money public money are spent to uh, encourage people to lose weight and at, at what cost and is it very effective so a, a common um stat that fat activists use is you know the diets almost always fail. They would say 95% of diets, 95% of diets fail. And I have never been able to verify that statistic, but I think, yeah, I think there's different ways of looking at it and, and, uh, and, um, trying to make it visible to people who, uh, you know, might otherwise look at a topic like fat activism and think that it's not for them or that they don't need it in their course or, you know, that it's something that's kind of out there and strange, but in fact, it's like, completely connected to these bigger picture picture questions of how we experience the world, um, how we spend money on health, how we consume and, and, um, like how we represent character. So absolutely. And,
0: And why do you think it is this niche part of Canadian history? Because obviously the book makes the case that of course it's not, and it does tie it into these larger things. So, Why why has it not been a more mainstream area of study and what do you think historians can do to better reflect some of the work that uh, you're finding here and the experiences of the people who you're talking to?
1: Well, I think I mean, part of the reason is that there hasn't been any books on it. I my the first you know book on the history of fat activism and you know Wendy Mitchinson's book on the history of obesity came out uh, two years ago Deborah McPhail's book came out University of Toronto Press has published all three of us so you know together we, we've helped to sort of um, create a historical literature around it so I think to a certain extent like many historical topics it just needs to percolate through the culture but I also think about it you know in a really practical terms you know having taught many university courses myself and you're going through and you're trying to pick what, what do you highlight for students and so something I've I really really try to do in the book and I try to do my interviews is always remind people that this isn't kind of an out there class but this is a sorry out there topic but it's a a topic that you know belongs in our conversations about social and cultural history in Canada because it really does connect out to those other issues and you know it doesn't mean you have to use my book I mean Wendy mentioned this book is also fabulous and hers is more focused on medical history and you know it's I think it's just um it's just, I think there's so much Canadian history left to be written actually. So I can't always uh, fault people for not, you know, taking on the topics that I particularly care about. But I do think that sometimes I think in our textbooks and in our, our big survey courses, we kind of tend to tag these um, topics that we think are, you know, related to the body or culture. We tag those on the end, you know, like they, they always, they always come at the end of the, the, the book. We're going to deal with, you know, the politics and the you know the social programs and the other things first, and then we'll tag the culture on at the end. But I want the culture to be like all through <laughs> right. the course of the conversation.
0: Yeah, well, it has to be because, like, even even think about the physical appearance of presidents and prime ministers. It's governed a lot by the culture, uh, particularly mm-hmm. the after television becomes common. That how you look yeah. in a political sense matters. So you can't just say. That, oh, hey, this politician was elected because of their policies. Well, if it's in the television area, that's not always the case. For sure. And I think,
1: yeah, that's a great, actually a great connection to make um, in terms of thinking about, you know, appearance and how it shapes how we encounter culture and news and and popular culture and, and, and things like that. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I, I was once at a conference and I, I was talking about the 1930 election And I put up a picture of R.B. Bennett and William Lyon Mackenzie King. And I asked very bluntly, do you think either of these guys could get elected today based on how they look? And I think most of the room thought I was joking, but Mm -hmm. I was serious. Like there's just so much that goes into it. And of course, the the Nixon Kennedy debate in 1960 is the most famous example of how much visual matters. So I agree that you can't just say, here's the politics, here's the military. right, now here's the culture, because it's all tied together. The lived experience that people have, they don't go vote and then the voting is independent of the rest of their lives and the politicians aren't politicians and their political life is independent of them walking around as Canadians living where they live. So that it all has to be tied together. But at the same time, the survey courses that I see now compared to the ones that I took, at the, in the early 2000s as an undergraduate student, there's a lot more that's in there and it's, it's being shaped in, a, in, I think, a more wholesome way. But you're right. There's so much more to be done in that regard, to, to flush it out, to create a more, a fuller picture of what the experience of living in this country has been for the past however long your course is going back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I shouldn't pick on teachers too much because I'm sure I committed, you know, I did that, uh, did that very thing myself in many of my courses, but, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just, uh, I, I, um, you know, I'm also a really uh, big proponent of you know looking at contemporary Canada and contemporary history. When I started the study, I think it was a little too uncomfortably close for some of the senior faculty in my grad school. But I, I just think there's a lot of questions to be asked, and and I am not speaking this you know specifically about my book. You know, I'm obviously very proud of it, but it, just in general, I think to connect to students, we need to connect to the the sort of the recent past and invite them into the past by connecting with topics that they sort of see and understand. So. Yeah, these are my, you know, as a public historian in my current role now, these are sort of the questions that um, are animating how I think about the past.
0: And that's a reason, too, why people should go and get the book. Again, it's Being Fat Women, Weight, and Feminist Activism in Canada from the University of Toronto Press. Jenny, where can people find the book? And where can people find some more about you and all the other exciting work that you're doing, both with the museum and elsewhere?
1: Yeah, super. Yeah. Well, the book, you can get it online at University of Toronto Press and then through other major booksellers online and in person. You can find me February 2nd uh, during an online talk from the Ottawa Historical Association. So you need to go to their Facebook page to find out more details for that. And I'm also currently uh, featured in a documentary called Well Rounded. So the website for that is wellroundedthemovie.com, which is making its way through festivals that just premiered it inside out. And then online at the Jenny E is my Twitter handle.
0: So those are. Yeah. So check all that out. We will link to everything at activehistory.ca. If you want to centralize that, we'll link to everything. But definitely check out all of Jenny's work, a lot of uh, exciting stuff going on. And that Ottawa Historical Association talk, what's cool, it's a local talk. And yet, for the first time, it'll be accessible to everybody. So everyone across the country can go on February the 2nd and listen to Jenny give her talk. It's great. Uh, Run, don't walk. <laughs> so, Jenny, thank you so much for talking to me today.
1: Okay, thanks,
0: Sean. And there you have it. My conversation with Jenny Ellison. My thanks to her for joining me. And again, the book is Being Fat Women, Weight, and Feminist Activism in Canada. So, definitely check it out from our friends over at the University of Toronto Press and check out all of Jenny's other work that she talked about. And as I said, we'll link to everything over at Active History. Speaking of which, head on over to activehistory.ca. A lot of great material up there this month, lots of great posts. You can also find every episode of the History Slam in the podcast section of the website. So definitely head on over there, check it out. And please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever it is you're listening to this. Go ahead, subscribe, give us likes, ratings, all that stuff helps the show improves the algorithm so other people find it keeps the show going and of course if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show please do get in touch history slam at gmail.com or you can find me on twitter at the sean graham so that'll do it for this week's episode thank you everybody for listening we'll be back with you next week but until then if you're out and you see enrico palazzo please say hi for me